Happy Sabbath, or, or should I say, Happy Salvation by Grace Through Faith in Christ Alone Day. Um, I think I, I shared that Sabbath greeting with you last time I was here, and um, I've been using it everywhere I go now. And uh, it makes some people mad, you know? Sometimes it just doesn't register in the moment that the Sabbath means all of that. Well, I'm here today to tell you that the Sabbath is ram-packed full of beautiful meaning regarding our relationship with the God of grace who has bestowed upon us a salvation we can do nothing whatsoever to earn. It's all of grace. It's good to be here. This, this renovation looks great. It's just beautiful. The carpet matches my suit, so that's perfect. <laughs> this is... This is completely unexpected. It looks good, though. Um, We're enjoying our time on campus. David and I are doing an event that we call the Arise Intensive, and that thing's going on over at the gym. I guess it's called the Johnson Gym, and uh, we began this morning at 745. I've already given two messages, and the people are so beautiful here on this campus that the humidity can be endured. This is horrible where you live, at least at this time of the year. But it's just good to be with the people. I lost weight over there in those two sessions. It feels good in this building. The gym, there's a problem going on over there. And we're doing 48 hours of intensive. Hey, I want to pray with you and then jump in to what we're going to be talking about. Father in heaven, God, we're under the impression that you're better than we know that you are more beautiful than we have yet realized. Father, we want to confess that we're broken and we're wounded and we're fragile. There are things going on inside of us that, that block our vision of your love for us. I pray, Father, that you would intervene right now on our behalf, that you would send your spirit to say things to us, Lord, that we need to hear, each one of us. Father, we want to see you and know you with greater clarity, perhaps than ever before. Please speak to our hearts above and beyond and around what this preacher has to say. Please talk to each one in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I spent a lot of time uh, traveling to, to do evangelistic meetings, to conduct seminars of different kinds. And, and that means that I end up in a situation where... I often need to get a haircut kind of on the road as I'm going from place to place. And it's really inconvenient because you don't know what you're going to get. So I was in Atlanta not long ago, and and I thought, man, I'm going to be here for quite a while. I need a haircut. So I texted a buddy of mine that lives there. And he said, I've got just a place for you. And he texted me an address. So I just took the address, put it into Google Maps, of course, and just went there. And as soon as I pulled up to the place, I thought, I don't know. This is not supercuts. This is not a barber. This, is, this looks expensive. That's what the signage said to me. That's what everything said before I even entered the place. But I thought, oh man, this is my friend and I'm, I'm just going to take his advice. I'm gonna... So I walk in and the place is impressive. This young lady greets me. I tell her my name and she says, come right with me and I will lead you through the first phase of your experience. 
So I say to myself privately in my mind, I'm going to have an experience because I just want a haircut. And my experience is going to have phases. But I'm in now, so I follow her and she shows me my seat and I'm alone there for just a few seconds before two different young ladies emerge and take my order for what kind of tea and cookies I want. I happen to like cookies, so I selected from the little handheld menu the cookies that I'm going to have. I have no idea how I'm going to eat them while my hair is being cut. So they bring the tea and the cookies. And then this this young man emerges and his hair, his hair is a force to be reckoned with. It's beautiful. It's just, it's just amazing. I'm thinking, I, I, I want to look like him. I want to look like him. I wonder if he's the one to cut my hair. And as he comes up to me sitting there in the chair, he introduces himself. He says, I am Zene Limon. I said, could you spell that? He spells it. I said, dude, come here. Your name is Zane Lemon, isn't it? He said, yeah. But for you right now, in this moment, Zene Lemon. <laughs> so he has what he calls a consultation with me for my haircut. A consultation as I'm eating my cookies and sipping my tea. We have a conversation about what he's going to do to my hair. And I'm thinking in my mind, this is going to cost me something. (laughs) The cookies, the tea, this is just phase one of my experience. They haven't even touched my hair yet. I haven't even seen scissors, clippers, nothing. And after the consultation, he says, now Julia will assist you in the next phase of your experience. I thought I was about to get a haircut from Zene Limon. And Julia leads me through a hall where there are, I used the word curtains. She said, they're drapes. I said, okay. She pushed a button and they parted and we walked through and I sat in another chair. She pushed a button and it began to elevate and recline. And as it elevated and reclined, somebody began to massage my scalp with some kind of lovely potion that I can't even describe the aroma of as they put something on my eyes that was obviously warmed to the perfect temperature for eyes. Who knew? And as my scalp is being massaged, I hear a voice from the left and from the right. May we massage your hands? And I'm thinking, okay. (laughs) And my hands are massaged. And once the massage is complete, the seat returns to its upright position, and Julia escorts me back to Zene Limon, and I get a haircut that takes a really long time to pull off. We become friends. 
relationships are built, and I'm thinking, this is going to cost me a lot of money. When it was all done, I was escorted to the front desk where I thanked the person who was manning that space. There was a whole staff for this operation. And I thought, okay, here it comes. Get ready for it. Get the credit card ready. Get it ready. And I said, okay, well, how much would that be? And she said, well, there's no charge. She said, apparently somebody likes you. I'm thinking, this is my friend who sent me the address. Turns out his sister owns the place. And I have been given not the royal treatment, but the treatment that everybody that walks in the door gets. The only difference was I didn't have to pay. So I began negotiating with him whether or not I could make this same visit every time I come (laughs) to Atlanta. (laughs) He said he would talk to his sister. I've never heard from him on the matter again. So that's something like what's going on in the gospel, only on a grander scale. Somebody really likes you and me. And there's a whole bunch of free goodness coming our way. All I wanted, honestly, all I wanted was a haircut. But I got abundantly above all I could ask or think. It was, in fact, a three-phase experience that day. God has an interest in you and me that the Apostle Paul understands and articulates for us that is very similar. Are we on? It's not moving for me. Slides? We're having an experience right now, and this is phase one. Do you want to... Okay. I'm going to quote to you from Ephesians chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul is engaging in a prayer, and his prayer is for you and me. And he says that he bows his knee to the God and Father of all creation. And here's the prayer, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, There we are. Do you have it? I have it now. Okay, here we go. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Track with the prayer now. To be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, the inner person. Note that Paul's prayer is focused on something taking place deep on the inside of us, that we would be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And here's his close. Now to him who is able to do 
exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now that's a prayer. The Apostle Paul is praying that you and I would have an experience in the inner person and the activating force of that experience is comprehension of the love of God. To be rooted and grounded in God's love, to know God's love and to comprehend it, although Paul says it passes knowledge, it surpasses mere intellectual computation. God's love cannot be comprehended the way you comprehend biology or math or sociology or cosmology. It's not just a mental, intellectual discipline. God's love surpasses mere knowledge. It's experiential. And Paul in his prayer is praying that you and I will have an experience. And that experience is an experience in the love of God. And God's love wants to get on the inside of who we are. Paul says that the inner man is the focus of this redemptive enterprise, this healing salvation enterprise. God, according to the apostle Paul, is seeking access to our hearts, to our minds, to the way we think and the way we feel deep inside what he calls the inner man. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher and theologian, spent quite a bit of time in his theological pursuits contemplating the inner man, the psychology of the human being. What is it that's going on inside of us? He predates Sigmund Freud by 100 years and is widely regarded as the father of existentialism as a philosophy. But he was first and foremost a theologian. And Kierkegaard says that he got his thinking regarding human condition pretty much from the first three chapters of the Bible. In examining the experience of Adam and Eve in creation and then the fall. Ernest Becker in The Denial of Death, regarded as one of the most important works on psychology ever written, the book won a Pulitzer Prize. He traces the pursuits of Freud as well as Kierkegaard and says that Kierkegaard anticipated the data of modern clinical psychology. This is 100 years before Freud. I and others are prepared to call Kierkegaard as great a student of, human as the human of the human condition as Freud. As great. Now watch this. He says that he draws a circle around psychiatry and religion. And this, he goes on to say, Becker goes on to say, is his uncanny genius. In other words, he is looking at human psychology through a psychological lens. And what he understood, he articulated in a statement that approximates what's going on in every human being. The universal condition, he says, the human condition is one of shut-upness. 
where a person blocks off their own perception of reality in an effort to protect themselves. Now, this isn't something he made up. This is something that he discerned in the biblical narrative. He began to understand that something is going on in human beings that shuts us down. And he understood that the plan of salvation is the process of opening us back up. To some degree, depending on the kinds of traumatic experiences that we've had, human beings are universally shut down, shut up. And Jesus is in the process of opening us back up. Kierkegaard understood human nature and the human condition as consisting of basically relational violation, which then generates shame or guilt, which then necessitates, because of the anxiety that is inherent in shame, repression. We need to take cover. We need to hide. We need to bob and weave. We need to come up with ways of coping with the shame that we can't process and don't want to face. And then we develop compensation mechanisms. We develop all kinds of sophisticated methodologies of pretense and positioning. And we take on personas. We become the class clown or we become the workaholic or we become the flirt or we become the academic, the brainiac. We pursue creating or manufacturing some kind of persona that gives a surface pretense that helps us survive against the shame that resides in the subconscious. Now, this is all being derived from Scripture. And specifically, the first three chapters of Genesis, which bring to our attention the story of Adam and Eve, the first humans. Now, before we look right at Genesis, fast forward in the narrative, and Hosea, chapter 6, makes a fascinating statement regarding the fall of humanity. And, and what it consisted of. For I desire, this is God speaking, I desire steadfast love. That's what I'm into, God. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. What I want from you, with you, what I'm giving you and looking for a reciprocation with is steadfast love. Not sacrifice. The knowledge of God. Not burnt offerings. I, I, I'm not setting up a religious system as an end of itself, in itself. Religion is only of any value to the degree that it opens people back up to the steadfast love of God. And that's what God wants. But notice this in the next verse. But like Adam, the ESV says, like Adam. Now, Hosea is referring all the way back to the fall of mankind. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant, and there, back in Eden, they dealt faithlessly with me. So here is a description of the fallen condition of humanity, and the fallen condition of humanity is described as a loss of love as the relational dynamic that was meant to exist between humans and between humans and God. I want love. 
But the fall of mankind, God says, consists of broken covenant. The word covenant is the biblical word for relational integrity. It's the dynamic of other-centeredness. God is relating to us in love, and the redemption project is the effort for God of God to reincorporate human beings into his love as the only relational dynamic that defines our existence. The plan of salvation isn't merely a legal arrangement by which we get out of trouble, i.e. hell, into heaven. The plan of salvation is a process by which God is rectifying the inner person, the inner man, what's going on inside of us. God is the great physician in the sense that he's the great psychiatrist, psychologist, At the core of the human condition, therefore, is relational violation. That's what's going on in the fall of mankind, and that is the universal situation that we're dealing with. Ellen White encapsulates it when she says in the book Steps to Christ that when Adam and Eve fell into sin, she simply says, selfishness took the place of love. That's it. The fall of humanity consisted of a displacement of love as the only relational dynamic in human experience. So come to Genesis then. And in Genesis chapter 3, we have the shame aspect of the human experience after the fall. The eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked. They knew that they were naked. This is the Bible's way of saying that they entered into a new phase of psychological awareness regarding themselves. They became self-aware, and that self-awareness was nakedness. It was deeply, deeply disconcerting and uncomfortable. And because they experienced the psychological phenomenon of shame, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And Adam and his wife, the scripture says, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Human beings are taking cover from God because exposure to his presence is invoking awareness of shame that they're not ready to deal with. So relational violation generates the inner phenomenon of shame. As The Bible continues to talk to us about Adam and his experience. We have this fascinating reference to Adam's experience in the book of Job. Job is contemplating his own experience and he says, I covered my transgression as Adam. Again, referring back to the experience in the first three chapters of the Bible, chapter three specifically, the fall of humanity, he says, I have transgressed, and what have I done with my transgression? I've covered it, and how am I covering it? Job says, by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, in my mind, in my heart, in my subconscious. I'm evading my own guilt and shame by tucking away those parts of my experience that I'm not prepared to deal with, he says, in my bosom, in my mind, in my heart, an unresolved sense of shame, we conclude then, tracking with Kierkegaard, produces or generates repression. Hiding our sin and our guilt, evading it by whatever means we can possibly 
find. The Body Keeps the Score is a remarkable book by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk where he tracks with the work of Freud and Kierkegaard and a number of other psychiatrists in the history of psychotherapy. And he distills the entire picture of the human condition by saying people cannot get better without knowing what they know and feeling what they feel. In other words, what he's saying to us is that what resides at the subconscious level needs to be brought to the conscious level. I need to move through an experience in which I can face what's going on inside of me that I'm not dealing with in order to heal from whatever traumas have afflicted me. I need to know at the conscious level what is hidden in me at the subconscious level. He goes on and he says that this is such a, such a horrible prospect and produces such deep anxiety for human beings that trauma almost invariably involves not being seen and not being taken into account. In other words, a human being who senses that they are not seen and known as they are does not have the courage, he goes on to explain, to face what's going on inside. Guilt and shame cannot be faced outside of the context of relationship or being taken into account. Feeling listened to and understood changes, he says, our physiology even. So what's going on psychologically impacts our biology, our physiology, hence the title of the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Everything that we experience mentally and emotionally is making some kind of imprint on our biology. We're physically experiencing what psychologically goes on inside of us for better or for worse. In fact, recent studies have indicated that loving relationships in which a person senses that they are seen and known and still loved is a greater determinant of health and longevity than even diet and whether a person smokes and drinks or not. In other words, you'd be better off and don't do this, smoking and drinking and having great relationships than to have toxic relationships and be a teetotaling, non-smoking vegetarian. This is what the data is beginning to reveal to us, that our psychological processing has more to do with our health than anything else. So summarizing what we've realized so far, I'm suggesting to you that what's going on universally for human beings is that guilt shuts us up and love is the mechanism by which we open back up. Paul's prayer is that we would know and comprehend the love of God so that it takes hold of us in what he calls the inner man, deep in our psychological makeup, to give us the capacity and the courage to open back up and come out of the shadows, out of guilt, out of shame, out of relational breakdown, and to begin to heal as a human being. So in the biblical narrative... There are really only two possibilities for us to consider as a reference point for our identity. There is what we've already considered, and that's the first Adam. 
Adam's experience is an experience that we can relate to and identify with, whether we know we're doing it or not. But there is another Adam that comes on the scene of human history to create a new narrative as a new starting point for human beings. Paul breaks it down in Romans chapter 5 when he says, through one man, sin entered the world. This is referring to Adam. Genesis chapter 3. Through one man, sin entered the world. And Adam, he says, that Adam is a type of him who was to come. Now he's referring to Jesus. He's saying there's the first Adam, but there's a second Adam. Now watch where he goes with this. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. The universal condition of an internal sense of judgment resulting in condemnation, which is a psychological phenomenon. It doesn't even need to be externally imposed, although often it is in our relationships. We deal out judgment and condemnation. But we know on some level that we're naked with guilt and shame and not to be looked upon as we are for fear of rejection. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation, even so, verse 18, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life. Jesus brings to the world a new story, a new narrative, a new starting point that comes upon us by means of gift. He just gives it to us. There's nothing we can do to earn it. You can't make God love you any more than he already does because he already loves you with all his love. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn God's favor because we already have it. This is the point that Paul is making. Condemnation came through the first Adam, but the gift of grace and justification to life came through the second Adam. So Adam's story is one of violation, shame, and repression. Relational violation, covenant breaking, as Hosea would describe it, or an absence of love as the relational dynamic existing between people. Shame is the result of all relational violation, and repression is how we take cover how we compensate, how we somehow deal with our situation. But Christ is a story of a love that comes upon us as a gift, cannot be earned, cannot in any way be taken into our lives by means of some kind of transaction. If you hear God on any level of your theology saying, I'll love you if, and you can fill in the blank. It's transactional and it's not love. It has nothing, it doesn't bear any resemblance to the heart of God. Jesus comes into the world to lavish upon us a love that regards us as innocent prior to any actual innocence. Back in chapter four of Romans, Verse 17, the Apostle Paul summarizes the idea by saying, listen, God calls those things which do not exist as though they do exist. That is, he regards you as innocent even though he knows you're guilty. He regards you as righteous even though he knows you're sinful. He doesn't 
do this in order to create a, a fiction that he wants us to live out, continuing in guilt and unrighteousness. He relates to me as if I'm innocent in order to produce in me an aspiration for becoming innocent. But the relational dynamic is one of love and innocence, which produces openness in us. All of our church communities, to the degree that they are defined by this love that confers as a gift innocence upon people, no matter where they are in their experience as a human being, they are welcome into the fellowship of the body of Christ. That acceptance, more than doctrinal teaching, though doctrinal teaching is vital, it is that acceptance and that gifting of innocence in one another's presence through Christ that actually makes us more susceptible to doctrinal teaching and changes us from the inner man out to the degree that our local church communities are defined by assessing and marginalizing and rejecting people because of the issues that they're processing and dealing with, we block their access to the very remedy for their guilt and their sin. A climate of acceptance initiates openness in human beings. To be fully known and fully loved simultaneously is the essence of our healing as human beings. This is the gospel. The gospel is not transactional, it's gift, 100%. God giving me a status of innocence and righteousness before him so that I can open back up. His love being the means by which he opens us back up. So then Paul follows Romans 5 with his two Adams gospel. And he says, listen, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Do you realize that in his context, what Paul has just said, after moving through his two Adams discourse, he comes into chapter six by essentially saying that baptism is, I guess, the initiation ceremony into the new narrative of Christ. Basically, it is a mini reenactment of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. So that when I am baptized, I am saying I disavow my history and connection with the old Adam and all of the brokenness and shame of human history. And I embrace and I accept and I take on board in my thinking, in my heart, in my mind, I take on board the new narrative, the new story that is encapsulated in Christ. He's the new man. Jesus is the eschatological man. He is the one who has come at the end of the world, so to speak, quoting Paul, in order to basically refound the world on a new premise, and the new premise is the premise of innocence 
and righteousness as a gift in the relational dynamic. And this is where Kierkegaard brings to us what I think is his master stroke in understanding, coming to the conclusion that the shut-upness, the guilt and the shame and the sin that shuts us down to love, he says, as we begin to open back up to the love of God, as God's love opens us back up, he says, and it's just so beautiful, he says, now with the help of God, I shall become myself. Myself. In other words, God's love saves me without erasing me. My individuality, my personhood is, is, is kept intact. And God basically leads me through an experience in which all the good and beautiful parts of the identity that he has given me as a human being are maximized and begin to grow and to mature and to flower, and all the woundedness and pain and shame begins to be deleted and erased from my experience. So imagine you, the very you that you are, with all the shame and the sin and the brokenness erased, and all the beautiful and good parts of your humanity retained. God is seeking to save us on that level. The inner man is the focal point of his love. Listen now. Paul is teaching us that the gospel is not an externally imposed, an externally imposed moral imperative. Get your act together and then come see me. It's not an externally imposed moral imperative. The gospel is an internally realized gift of love and grace that completely repositions me in relation to God and therefore repositions me in relation to myself. I can begin to see myself through God's eyes and to begin to relate to myself through his love for me And this then begins to correct and rectify all my experiences, all of my relationships as a human being. The inner man is the target of this love. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is waxing eloquent about the gospel. And then he says regarding his work as a gospel minister, but also the experience that all of us have as human beings, even though our, collectively, all of us, Even though though our outward man is perishing, entropy is having its way with you and me. We're getting older and older and we're, we're, we're perishing biologically. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Can you imagine? He's essentially saying that, that, that we're going to get older physically and younger psychologically through the gospel. That we're going to age biologically but the clock will be turned back by the gospel in our hearts and minds. G.K. Chesterton says, we have sinned and grown old, and our Father God is younger than we are. Guilt is an aging process. Innocence and the gift of God's righteousness 
begins to return us back to what we were meant to be and to maximize our potential as human beings. I wrote a poem for you that describes what I've been experiencing through contact with Christ in the gospel. I'm noticing something strange, though I find it wonderful too. And I'm curious if it's only me or if it's also true of you. As my body wanes and weakens and my days increase and slow, I'm getting gradually younger by the new things that I know. My thoughts expand elastic. My will no longer fights. My wounds become like fictions as I walk into the light. Sensitivity deepens. Old scars gradually heal. I'm growing young while aging as I relearn how to feel. Soon I'll cross the great divide to the land of endless youth and know his love eternal as the one and only truth. The gospel restores innocence to us. We want God to get us out of trouble and to give us things. Cookies and tea and fancy haircuts and... But God wants to restore innocence to our hearts and love to all of our relational dynamics. We need to want more from him. Not more things, but more peace. More sense of innocence. More joy. More relational harmony. More forgiveness for those who have failed us. More receiving of forgiveness because of our failures toward others. And Kierkegaard says that when you fully enter the realm of love, this broken world, it just starts to look different. This broken world becomes rich and beautiful. And you begin to see every day you wake up and you, wow, what this whole day is about, what every day is about. What life consists of is solely opportunities to love people. That's what God is seeking to achieve in us. You can take a deep, deep sigh of relief. God loves you. You have his favor. He only has your best interests at heart. You're innocent in his eyes. You're righteous before him. And in the light of his love for you and me, he is promising us to do abundantly above all that we could ask or think. All I wanted was a haircut. That's it. I got far more than I bargained for, and it was all free. It was all free because somebody liked me. Well, I'm here this morning to tell you that God likes you immensely. Draw close to him. Enter into relationship with him. 
Allow him to have access to the, to the inner person, to overcome the shame and the guilt that you feel there by his love for you. Say yes this morning to God's love for you. Would you do that with me right now? Father in heaven, yes. Yes, Lord. We accept your love, the gift of a conferred innocence that we don't own by rights. We accept the gift of your righteousness bestowed upon us as a gift. Thank you for relating to us as if we've never sinned. Please wake up new desires inside of us. Father, make us sensitive and kind and generous and forgiving. Help us to learn how to love like you love. In Jesus' name, amen.